Hello. It is I, your friend, the internet. Welcome to Set Break. Ha, ha, ha. Osiris Podcast Network. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to Set Break. We'll be returning to your regularly scheduled season very soon, and we are really excited about the guests and themes in store for you on the back end of season one. But what you're about to hear is a bit different. Think of it as the drums slash space of our little program. Pure improvisation. In previous episodes, You've heard us riff on the ways that the dead have inspired other musical acts. This session blows that up with closer examination of some of the connections we've already made along with new points to consider. Ed, Kevin, and I sit down to map the grateful genome, looking at the often subtle ways the dead's influence shows up in other artists. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's merely a dialogue that captures our reflections in the moment, just like a heady live set. And the best part is, it comes with a playlist. You'll hear plenty of music in the show itself, but we're also adding some additional tracks to the Spotify playlist that you'll find on our website, deadtomepod.com, as well as in the episode show notes. So fire one up, kick back, and enjoy episode zero of Dead to Me, Mapping the Grateful Genome. Ed and Kevin, let's do this. So we're going to do things a little differently for set two of season one of Dead to Me, and things might get a little freaky. We've got myself, Casey, Ed, and Kevin together around real microphones Mm -hmm. in real time. It's real. Neither rain nor sleet nor snow. (laughs) Cold rain and snow. (laughs) And it literally is snowing outside, which triggers my PTSD from all those years in the Northeast. (laughs) Uh, It just shows you how dedicated we are. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) So I was thinking the other day about this idea that I couldn't quite let go of. And eventually I thought, well, maybe that'll be a good theme for the show. So we all know the Grateful Dead were influential to bands in this genre known as jam but i thought maybe we could take a look at some of the other acts that carry the dead dna even if they don't know it which means we're free to speculate (laughs) right i started thinking about this when i tried to get into the blind melon album soup which i hadn't been able to dig before but upon (laughs) repeated urging i figured i would check out one more time and i'd always thought blind melon were an okay band i wasn't necessarily going to go to bat for them i didn't find them horribly offensive Mm -hmm. but when i listened to soup two things happened one 
I did get it. I understood the appeal of that album, particularly how weird it actually is. Much weirder than I'd remember. Right. And the second thing that was kind of revealed was the way that it was weird reminded me of a band that I really did like back in the late 1980s and early 90s, Jane's Addiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I wouldn't be the first person to actually point out the similarities between Jane's Addiction and Blind Melon. Uh, No, absolutely not. And in fact, the first album of Blind Melon basically was ripping off Jane's Addiction. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was highly likely that Blind Melon knew who Jane's Addiction were and probably liked the band even. But I think there's something else at play here. There's another strand. Because to rip something off right, you kind of got to know where it's coming from. And these bands don't have similar backgrounds. Like Jane's came from punk and goth and metal. And Blind Melon seemed more rooted in classic rock. So I get a sense that there's some other hidden influence at play and that influence is probably the grateful dead i think it's my fault that you came around the suit i'm not sure (laughs) yeah it was you so let's talk about those musical similarities everybody like tones of home right yeah tones of home is from their first record and this was Mm -hmm. big when i was in college yeah well it's a party album it's not soup though which people actually didn't like. Nobody bought it. It was critically panned. <laughs> Nobody got it. Yeah. And because of the weirdness of it, and it just felt like when I heard it, it felt like these guys basically went to a dead show and got lost in their minds in drums and space. Yeah. <laughs> the way these parts throughout the album interlock, mm-hmm. uh, the tales they're telling are dark. You don't want to be hallucinating when you're listening to this album. No. Uh, yeah. It's complex, but it also like leans heavy into like this 90s aesthetic that was going on. It's baffling. <laughs> yeah, it does have a certain pearl jamminess to it. Yeah. But again, I think the through line is the Grateful Dead. Some of those silvery guitar tones and the interlocking aspects that you described, Kevin, no. are definitely Grateful mm-hmm. Dead-ish. And the tribal aspect of the rhythms seem to be borrowed from the dead and that's something present in both jane's addiction and blind melon at least on this album yeah jane's addiction are probably less jammy than blind melon but both bands have a sort of druggy spacey thing going on that seems to owe its existence to the dead let's uh, let's play a little bit of the uh blind melon track that uh, we picked here to give people an idea of what we're talking about. This this song, Toes Across the Floor, uh, goes places, and that's putting it mildly. I don't think I've heard stuff like this before or since, uh, which is why I love the album, but uh, this is one of the high points of it. Same as 
so this is definitely a dark song, and I guess maybe that's another thing that reminds me of Jane's Addiction. But interestingly, the Jane's Addiction song that I want to play next isn't particularly dark. It's actually kind of sunny. So let's give a listen to Summertime Rolls by Jane's Addiction from the album Nothing Shocking. And I promise I'll never mention them again on this show. Well, after this episode. the magic of radio we're gonna skip ahead just a little bit So I was like a big Jane's Addiction fan, so it's extra heartbreaking to consider how Perry Farrell, the singer, went from being like the world's coolest human being to the alt-rock Liberace. Spokesman for uh, Cuervo Tequila, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's lower tier than that. Or, yeah, Hornitos or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we could do an entire podcast about that and it wouldn't make anybody happy. (laughs) But... Trolling uh, post entourage Perry for all. <laughs> <laughs> Jane's had, uh, I think of them as having two modes. And one is that sort of like kind of funk metal adjacent kind of thing yeah. that you hear some of in, you know, Primus or Living Color or other kind of alt uh, acts of the day. But then I think, you know, the back half of Ritual and uh, Ritual De Lo Habitual, which is their second studio. Yes. Album. And this song are really kind of like hazy dopey sort of yeah. like and there's an attempt i think by the band to kind of break down that fourth wall yeah. and and that and that might have been i think what what you were sensing there casey of just this idea of like wow someone figured out how to make music that actually pulls you in yeah that creates a headspace i think that was missing from alternative yeah yeah although the grateful dead were doing it the whole time what does kevin think about all this jane's addiction stuff well i was probably listening to phil collins when this dropped but, <laughs> but uh and you know probably will later today well, he's but... deeply psychedelic yeah <laughs> <laughs> just try a Sue studio on headphones man <laughs> 
But in all seriousness, there's a real thread here with psychedelia, and you can trace a lot of that to the Grateful Dead. The Dead made it this, like, it was a whole universe instead of a pop band. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when you sequence, like, the full Dead genome, there are so many different, like, family trees that spring out of there, right? So so, so the obvious one is kind of just the idea of doing improv-based rock, which, right. so now, there's no such thing as doing that and not having some musical debt to the Dead. Sure. Um, Here's where you color outside the lines. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So, um, and those, are, and, and, you know, we're, we're sort of purposely avoiding, I think, some of the most obvious um, Dead comparisons here. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the other the other place where you see a lot of it and where it's really obvious is is in the Americana space, partly mm-hmm. because because that's what the dead were. And also because Garcia himself with Olden in the way and, you know, that sort of launches new grass revival. And suddenly you're at Chris Thiele and, you know, right. there's no uh, that's an easier um, part of the genome to trace. Yes. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think in this space, it's kind of fun because it's you know, you wouldn't have expected sublime to be influenced by the dead in the same way that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it in in Jane's. But right. I think it's 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 really clearly there. Yeah. And that side of it, as it progresses through the 90s and 2000s, one character comes to mind, Stephen Malkmus of the band Pavement. Yeah. Like if you were listening to indie rock in the mid to late 90s, you probably weren't thinking about the Grateful Dead. But here is Stephen Malkmus and his band Pavement, who are in subtle ways and not so subtle ways forcing that comparison. Yeah, I love late in life Malkmus. I think he turned like 50 and was just sort of like, okay with owning his uh, the fact that he loved the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On this album that we're going to play a song off of Wig Out at Jagbags, there's a uh, there is actually a song that that references uh, you know, I, th- I think it. Goes, I think the lyric goes, "We lived on Tennyson, Venison, and the Grateful Dead." <laughs> wow, I think I'm more impressed with the Alfred Tennyson reference. <laughs> and just in case you weren't sure that he was being sincere, he actually then drops this song, "Cinnamon and Lesbians," toward the back half of the album, which which w- would, it bears a striking uh, resemblance to a song that a lot of Deadheads are going to know. <laughs> well, let's check it out. Here's "Cinnamon and Lesbians" by Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks. <laughs> That is literally the riff to St. Steve. You can call him St. Steve when you know him as well as I do. <laughs> yeah, when you're on a first-name basis. St. Stephen Malkmus. He talks so much shit about pavement songs now. Oh, man. He mocks how easy those songs are and how simple they <laughs> that are. That crappy punk music I used to play. <laughs> yeah, and the rest of the Jicks do, too. They love to say, like, oh, well, Steve's been on tour with Pavement, so he's going to need some you know, he's gonna need some time to, like, bone up on his chops to play Jicks <laughs> songs again. Burn. So we all know that Steve Malkmus is an indie darling. Mm-hmm. People who listen to Steve Malkmus... Uh, probably like 
bands like the Velvet Underground. They sure do. And when you think about an album by the Velvet Underground, like Loaded, yeah. it's almost a jam album. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. There's, there's a reason Fish covered Loaded, right. <laughs> right? These worlds are closer than we think. The Grateful Dead called themselves the Warlocks, and so did the Velvet Underground. You can get high to both of them. <laughs> right, right. Can, can we pause to like sort of redefine what psychedelia is? Most, most people... Music you can take drugs to? Yeah, that's, that's what most people think. But, I mean, you can take drugs to anything. That's like saying a, a thing is instrumental. Like, all music is instrumental. <laughs> well, there's acapella, but... Have you ever tripped and listened to Susudio? <laughs> <laughs> like, see, the, your definition is lacking here. What, no, man. I am just interested in preserving my sanity. <laughs> what I'm looking for is this idea of of not overtly creating uh, something you have to follow, uh, like a Genesis album or a Yes album. You know, you have to believe in the space whales, but something that gets you in. I believe in the space whales. I do too, but but it gets you in and then starts to unlock stuff in your head. Space whales would make for great merchandising for this show, right? On it, on it. <laughs> so, Ed, what have you got? So, you know, we were talking about the idea of technical proficiency in kind of indie and, and punk rock circles and how it was genuinely uncool to be into the dead in the 90s. If you're me. Like, it was just, and it would get you, like, laughed out of, like, yeah. a room well, with a bunch else wasn't cool guitar solo right it was not okay to like know how to play like a fluid guitar solo and make it sound good and that stems from the idea that bands like the pixies and um and nirvana eventually eventually come about as some sort of like reaction to guns and roses as opposed to being yeah i mean you had guys like jay mascus from dinosaur jr he was he was allowed to solo he was allowed to take a few extra bars right i mean a lot of it was splatter guitar stuff super cool but i wouldn't really call it well plotted on the other hand, Garcia's solos aren't plotted either, but he is having a high-level conversation that you can still follow. Garcia talked a lot about two of his main musical influences being both Coltrane and Scotty Stoneman, mm-hmm. who, was a, who was a fiddle player. And, and Scotty Stoneman, there aren't a lot of recordings of him doing this, but he would sort of, he would solo in the same way that Coltrane did. I think Garcia talks about those solos playing out like paragraphs instead right. of a series of sentences. And Stoneman would just go to town. But those were very long fiddle solos in in bluegrass, you know, in a genre that's very structured. And he would sort of kick the door open and and do other things. You have to maintain the integrity of your musical thoughts in real time at rapid speed. Yes. And you're doing it in an improvisational context and not a compositional one. Like metal players can really shred, but they tend to do it on a pre-mapped grid. Yeah, that's that's exactly. That's really well put. Um, and so, and so, I think it wasn't until much later that it became okay for um, for quote unquote indie bands to have like chops and mm-hmm. to show them. And I think um, Billy Corgan might have set the cause back a little bit because he was he certainly <laughs> fancied himself a guitar god. And, and uh, <laughs> well, you know, he made some okay noises. Uh, I'm not a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan at all, and in fact, when they first came out, it was. Sort of like going to the dance and seeing another girl wearing the same dress. Uh, <laughs> nice. He got, he got there first, and I was mad at him. Uh, Corgan was but, literally wearing a dress, though. That's, a, <laughs> that's funny on many levels. And so was Shannon Hoon at Woodstock yeah, ninety right. whatever, Absolutely right. ninety four. Not the not the, sh- the not the shitty one. Uh, the well, maybe it was also the shitty one. The less shitty one. <laughs> Of the modern Woodstocks, which, by the way, is coming back 
And I wonder if anybody in the dead is going to show up at this uh, new Woodstock. We'll be reporting live from we'll it. We'll be reporting live. <laughs> dead to me, live from Woodstock. So here's another musical connection I thought of. Miles Davis. Yeah. You've got John Schofield, who played in Miles' 80s band and covered Stella Blue. But yeah. Miles himself is also connected to the dead. He uh, might not have picked up anything musical, but he certainly was happy playing for Grateful Dead audiences. Yep, there is a kind of a family tree that goes all the way back um, to, I think, um, post-fusion Miles. And I was like reminding people that if you read Miles Davis's autobiography, he has nice things to say about like three people. <laughs> and he just talks shit about everyone else. One of those people is Jerry Garcia. He talks about meeting That's him right. backstage somewhere and basically says, yeah, he was really smart, really knowledgeable. I enjoyed talking to him. There's yeah. like no shade thrown at Garcia. He liked He's the audience. <laughs> he liked Jerry's musical mind. However, the dead were so intimidated yeah. at that show that they yeah. played in their estimation quite poorly. That's right. That's right um well and, and too and this is this is a good time for your uh, annual reminder that garcia was a bluegrass player he was and, and if you're talking about like musical traditions and like trying to track down this gen- genome you have jazz being one of the pillars of american music yep. and bluegrass is another garcia's grateful dead was bill monroe yeah i mean that's that's exactly that, that's who he toured after bill monroe that's how he met david grisman and he would tape um you know bill monroe and the bluegrass boys and people of that ilk, like when you see somebody wearing the same dress, you're like, hey, I recognize you. <laughs> yeah. You know, that bluegrass scene started a long time ago, but people are still making weird connections now. I'm thinking about bands that, you know, may even come from the same geographic location as the Grateful Dead, but are rocking out in our time. For example, there's a band called the OCs. Mm-hmm. And they're definitely not bluegrass, but they do come from Northern California, which leads me to believe that maybe there's something in the water. (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to drop in an OCs track into the playlist because there are contemporary bands that might be part of the genome. Yeah, for sure. This is, and and, uh, I'm glad we're playing this because this is, I know this is one of your favorite bands. Yeah, I like them a lot. Let's do a little bit of Jettison from the OCs. Which album was this on? This is on Orc. Orc. I need to point out that this band has two drummers. I know of another band that has two drummers. <laughs> That's groovy, man. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of deep psych in that, and I think that there's a whole host of acts that were active in the 90s and 2000s flying low on the radar 
that were carrying that part of the, the DNA, so to speak. And one of them that I know Ed likes and I like a lot is a Japanese band called Boredoms. Yeah. So we we uh, we locked in on them pretty early, I think, when we were talking about this. There's a really active Japanese noise scene, and Boredoms do not consider themselves to be necessarily part of that. But, um, but Again, like the dead, they are their own idiom. Yeah, they are. They are. And they have this weird commitment to the live experience being just kind of overwhelming from a sensory perspective mm-hmm. they might have a hundred percussionists for a show or you know it's it's wildly unpredictable and um and really of a piece with other uh kind of the japanese avant. really do push the envelope there i saw a band called acid mother's I was about temple to bring them up. yeah who were one of my favorite bands in in yeah. that period and they, have, they times... have a song called grateful dead kennedys <laughs> <laughs> well they tear open the cosmic wormhole they do they like, do listen i w- i was at this tiny tiny uh like venue in Northampton, Massachusetts. I went to the bathroom and I was standing at the urinal. I looked over and it was Makoto Kawabata standing <laughs> next to me looking like some like Taoist wizard that yeah. had just climbed down from a cave in a mountain. And then I we walked back into the main area and he got up and um, there was some silence and then there was no warning. Suddenly the vortex was opened up before <laughs> me. Yeah. Well that's well that's that's very much the feeling that these bands have and it's it's almost like um it's 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 not necessarily a structured piece of music. It's just you get the feeling the music is always happening and the recordings are just like you're sort of peeking into this world where the music is. And then at the end of the recording, it closes and the music's going to keep <laughs> yeah, going the on. Right? The wormhole persists. Yeah, right. So, um, and that's maybe the best way to kind of introduce the boredoms, I think. It's just this weird groove and, and melodic driven thing that's, uh, that's very percussive and and I just hear clear, like, dead footprints in there. This, this is going to be wild because I've never heard this. So this is Circle off of their their very well-known Vision Creation New Sun album. Time. I had a couple of CDs of theirs, and they were both just like one-track albums. It was like 60 minutes yeah. of music and just... Goes on forever. 
It's like that band Acid Mother's Temple, you know? You never really knew what you were going to get. And it was fun, too, because, like, you know, the studio stuff, you start to feel some... They put out a thousand records, and, like, at some point you feel like, you know, you're being had, maybe. Less so with Boredoms, because the Boredoms would only, like, activate if there was, like, a... It's a special a profound event. download uh, that you know needed to be transmitted to the universe. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, a major FTP that needed. But uh, Mikado would just like put stuff out. Like if he went to the bathroom and was like playing like yeah. the lute, you know, like or <laughs> he'd put it out. Uh, but the, but but live. I, so like you could be skeptical, but not standing in front of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know. Like there was no form to it. It, it was Lovecraft crawling yeah, chaos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like. That's a, and it started from nothing. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. That's so. So that is um, that's rad. First of all, <laughs> but but that is also uh, like prime acid test. Grateful Dead. Yeah. And yeah. which is one of my favorite periods. I forget which from the vault is specifically of, of that period, but it's just raw. Uh, actually, it's, it's I a, think gr- it is a, uh, Vault 2. Is it, I think it's Vault 2. And two. I was listening to A New Potato Caboose, which right. was a pre-Robert yeah. Hunter, you know, psychedelic jabberwocky. Yeah. And, you know, there's part of it that's toy shop psychedelic, and then there's this other part of it, especially live on this uh, this Vault mm-hmm. release. It opened up into other dimensions. It, it's other dimensions. It's also it feels almost like a, a different band. Like they they transformed somehow on stage sure. and created this, laid out this pathway for bands like the OCs, bands like that. You know, to just be like, hey man, if if you want it, it's out here. I think for people of our age, you think of the Dead as having become this kind of like bloated touring entity by the late '80s and '90s, and and yeah. and, and what that hides is their place in the avant garde, which is not insignificant. Right. Um, and they are, in fact, simpatico with a number of kind of like very challenging experimental uh, innovators. And in, well, in Phil Lesh comes out of that school yep. uh, specifically. He was playing some of the most challenging music out there, and he was not just a contemporary of Steve Reich, but buddies with and mm-hmm. co-composer with and co-performer with in those early mime troupe shows that they did together so there's a legitimate avant-garde side to the dead for sure um a lot of people associate that with lash but with garcia shit couldn't be weird enough for jerry garcia (laughs) that's right and i think about a band like king gizzard and the lizard wizard who are not from the u.s but they're from australia there's like i don't know 10 of them you know it's a big band it's like it's like the dead and they've been around for more than a decade not a single member has left uh or been replaced to my knowledge which leads me to believe that much like the dead they are being kept aloft by like right. by this deep <laughs> by you know, psychedelic shared, connection shared consciousness yeah. Yeah. yeah let's check them out you want to check them out okay uh which which album is this this is uh, uh gumboot something or whatever why do you ask questions like this <laughs> i don't know man <laughs> we'll edit that in all right king gizzard and the lizard wizard from the album gumboot soup
I'm willing to bet that is Mickey Hart's jam. <laughs> that that is so like Mickey Hart. What is that thing he plays? The beam. Yeah. Right. It's just, that is so like just Mickey Hart's up in there, just going, "Hey man, let's do it." Mickey's riding the beam. Well, there's a really interesting thing going on here when we think about kind of modern psychedelic acts like Dungan or um, or these guys, which is that they seem to be borrowing, you know, not only sonically from the dead, but there's this attitude that they're borrowing too. And if you were doing like the DNA test on these guys, I think there's another part of their genome comes from that kind of nuggets and children of nuggets world, which were these. So nuggets being a, a garage rock and psychedelic yeah. garage rock compilation. Well beloved and, and much sought after in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And it captured some Bay Area bands that were uh, contemporaries of the dead. Like there's bands like the Charlatans who mm-hmm. don't exist in really many other formats other than these types of compilations. Yeah. But yeah. Nuggets also, um, you know, had some of those Midwestern mm-hmm. uh, proto-punk bands yeah. that ended up kind of um, coalescing into acts like the Stooges. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing about Nuggets is I believe the very first Nuggets comp was uh, curated by Lenny Kay, who wrote the liner notes. And some listeners might know Lenny Kay as Patti Smith's longtime guitar player going all the way back to the uh, St. Mark's performances in New York when she was just a wild poet and he was her guitar player. You know, in some ways, the Patti Smith thing is interesting because she was actually a deadhead. She was, huh? Not many people know about that. And then, of course, that gets you to, like, sort of people who followed in her footsteps and look at her as being, you know... Yeah, uh, now we're on the Lower East Side, right? You're on the Lower East Side, (laughs) and who should come ambling up but Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. And Lee Ronaldo, also legit deadhead, right? Is Sonic Youth, to you guys, most directly the heir apparent of the Grateful Dead's legacy? Wow, so that's a provocative statement to make, but in terms of their improvisations opening up headspace and doing it in a rock idiom mm-hmm. and plenty of multi-guitar interplay. Yeah. You can make a case for it. When they were active, there weren't very many bands as committed to that approach and ethos as Sonic Youth. I'm sure they have other things in common. There is definitely a barrier to entry. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just thought of something that is similar between Sonic Youth and early Grateful Dead. They both loved feedback. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The early days, I just come across a, a quote from Mickey Hart the other day where he was talking about the band members, the other members of the dead in Primal Dead era, mm-hmm. standing on stage just doing sheets of overdriven feedback that drove the audience to demand that they stop. <laughs> And right. the band actually like complied. Yeah. They realized at some point that, that what they were doing might be construed as abusive. <laughs> so they left the stage and eventually got cheered back on. And if you've ever seen Sonic Youth live, that mindset should be fairly familiar. That's I, right. love, yeah. I, love, I love imagining Sonic Youth when they opened for Neil Young in like 90, was it 96 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, you know, because a significant percentage of people who were there to see Neil Young have no idea what they were in store for with Sonic Youth. Yeah. Right. right? And so just to have like... 50 minutes of, you know, On the other hand, that drenched. was when Neil was doing the arc weld experiment. That's and right. so he himself was doing yeah. like yeah, yeah. a half hour Challenging. of feedback. Yeah. But, the, but the, uh, yeah, my, po- my point is that the energy is just so uh, similar. It's yeah. Like they're, they're, if they're not on that wavelength, they're just like a couple hertz above it. Yeah. And another side to all this, we haven't talked about it as much on this episode because maybe it's kind of obvious, but the dead's influence on what we once called alt country. Sure. And one of the cornerstones of that vibe is a band called Cowboy Junkies. Yeah. 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 They are, they are, uh, these guys have been around forever. Forever. They are DIY as fuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, their first album was recorded in a, like just a church on one mic. 
So we've got we have more equipment here than they did <laughs> to record and yet this. It sounds too. so fabulous. It sounds mm-hmm. it sounds fantastic. And and they were steeped in like the tradition of songs and Robert Hunter. Uh, they did on this compilation dedicated. Yeah, mm-hmm. they did cover to lay me down. That's right. This compilation ninety one to touch back a little bit on you know how. how uh, uncool it was to like the dead. Right. This was like a coming out party for a lot of people. Jane's Addiction being one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they covered Ripple. You've got Los Lobos on here. Yeah. Bruce Hornsby, who would Hornsby very soon that. after yeah. this be would in the band. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, to this day, like, he does the, this. The artist on there that I never quite, you know, you know Costello's Ship of Fools. I, yeah. I, I, I like that version of the song, but I never really bought Costello as a deadhead. He but, is a deadhead. But he is, yeah. right? Yeah. As it turns That's, out, he is. Yeah. There's a joint uh, interview with him and Garcia in one of the guitar is, magazines of is the really? 80s or musician magazine. I did I not think. know that. I pictured Costello as somebody who's more deadhead because of the lyrics, mm-hmm. the writing of it. Which is why the National presumably liked the dead. Well, I think Costello did like the lyrics and the overall song craft, but he also got to see them live. I think it was Europe 1972, and he spoke very highly of the jams. So I think he definitely got it, Yeah, you know, to use the Grateful Dead parlance. Yeah, yeah. Further on down this track list, you've got, and this is a perfect fit, Dwight Yoakam doing uh, Truckin'. Yep. Like, if, if listeners, if you are not, like, steeped in the Dwight Yoakam catalog... <laughs> Do that. Like, treat yourself. Uh, is an amazing musician. And then, you know, you've got your, what you would expect, Indigo Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what you wouldn't expect, Warfret uh, by Midnight Oil. Wow. But Dr. John is up in there. Like, some, yep. a nice mix of, of stuff. But, but really, the Cowboy Junkies, you know, I can see them doing any of these songs. Well, I'm sold. So let's check out the Cowboy Junkies doing To Lay Me Down from the sadly out-of-print 1991 compilation dedicated. To lay me down Once more To lay me down With my head In sparkling glory Let the
That, that version of that song was beautiful. I mean, that song's beautiful anyway, but that version in particular of that song was beautiful. That uh, that band exudes the vibe. Yeah, of Cowboy Junkie's incapable of uh, non-beauty. Yeah, I, I would I would yeah. agree with that statement. Every every, it's a different headspace. It's not spastic. It's not drug fueled. It's not. It's just you put on a record of theirs and you're you're there. Well, it so, might be drug fueled. They have junkies in the name. That's of true. <laughs> You well, know, on the playlist, I think we should include some other stuff in that Americana bag because that is a deep well. Mm-hmm. We've got Gillian Welch and David Rawlings and another artist I like, Jesse Sykes and The Sweet Hereafter. And I'm sure Ed and Kevin have plenty, too. So we're going to put them on the playlist. But it's really just a vibe. Yeah. It's a haunted quality that these acts have that feels like it's somehow out of sync with time. And I think that's also very much a quality that you'll find in the Garcia Hunter songbook. You know, there's something about the Garcia vibe, that kind of like lonely, druggy sort of... Shattered. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, getting getting that right kind of melancholy Garcia vibe is a really challenging thing to do. Right. Some can do it. Cowboy junkies could do it. That's exactly where I see the link playing out is they can capture that feeling of like someone who hasn't gotten up out of bed for three days. Yeah, I mean... In the Grateful Dead catalog, it's a portion of the catalog, but it's yep. it's there. You take a song like Black Peter, where yep. that feeling shows up in one of the earlier Garcia Hunter compositions. Must have been the Roses. Must have been the Roses, Stella Blue, and the ultimate bookend, Black Muddy River. Yep. For me, that point on the genome is you take these songs, and what Garcia could do like amazingly well, I think better than almost anybody, is actually give them life. Yeah. So you're having these words, and then you, you interpret them, and then the audience sees you as, that's the character. That's right. He really sells it. It feels so authentic. And that's because it is. The relationship between Garcia and Hunter is deeply intertwined and and goes back to when they were both such very young men. Right. I right. think Garcia, he said that he never needed to edit Robert Hunter's words because it had through their collaboration, the edit had already happened. He's only going to sing the ones that are the most meaningful to him. Yep. And I think uh, Hunter became more attuned to writing for Garcia in various um, portions of his life, various mm-hmm. you know, epochs of his existence. Yeah. And there's a tenderness um, that, that I think comes out. That's a good word. That exists yeah. in, in both uh both mediums. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's survived uh, and propagated more so than, say, the Bobby vibe. <laughs> I was actually just about to bring that up. It's like, it, we have achieved the mind meld. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about the dedicated comp. I don't remember how many Bob Weir songs are on that, but there's an even newer compilation, Day of the Dead, and I'm not sure if there's a whole ton of Bob Weir songs on that either. Now, look, I like Bob Weir songs. I've grown to like a lot of Bob Weir songs that I never thought I would like. Yeah, you know what? I'm looking at this. There is not. There's not a really big Bob presence. <laughs> oh, man. So estimated profit is not on there. No. Right? So here's the thing. Maybe I want to cover Feels Like a Stranger, which is one of my least favorite dead songs that I have grown to love. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or grown to like. Maybe I just want to sing Silky, Silky, Crazy, Crazy Nights. <laughs> crazy Tour. Yes. That's... um. 
A little well, lore there for well, you. <laughs> well, so you get... I <laughs> thought you'd slot that one by me, but I caught it. Two versions of Dark Star on this. <laughs> yeah. But it's not... But, but you know, the, the, the Weir songs, I think, are more... They feel a little bit more concrete. So something that I think of as being very Weir, like a Dark Hollow or... Um, a, um, a new Minglewood blues or something like that, right? Those are not songs new, that people new are Minglewood gonna... isn't really like a Bob. Weird it's not even an original. Song. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. like an old blues. Yeah, it's song like a Reverend Gary Davis. Well, ha- or half step with... uptown, like you know. But, well, uptown's amazing. Yeah, uptown's yeah, a fucking incredible yeah, I love song. That song. Yeah, <laughs> Mississippi half step. Yeah, uptown, uptown to Lou. Yeah, the uh, the English town version of that from 1977 is just. Is there a Steely Dan version of that song? That would be amazing. (laughs) There's East St. Louis Toodaloo, but that's different. But Steely Dan could do this song. It's pretty crazy. All those harmonic changes. Bob's songs have some weird changes. I don't know if they're classic. His stuff's always been like more dated. It's hard to translate because first of all, you have to have really short shorts. I mean, (laughs) that's 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 the first step right there. But there there was a because he was the youngest member in the band. It's an exuberance to him that is not always going the right direction <laughs> but it was going <laughs> and uh, and but but it was so, just so jazzed to be doing this yeah. yeah he made some amazing contributions i just don't know that they were all melodic um yeah a lot of his innovations are on guitar yeah, i agree yeah. you know those weird bobby chords he um opens up doors in improvisation that would otherwise go unopened yeah and in composition too i mean the cool lick in china cat is weird yep and I, I'll, I guess I'll go to bat for Lost Sailor, Saint of Circumstance. No. I'll, I'm one of you nope. who will, but nope. I, I would not. If, if you... <laughs> okay, right. you will. All right. Uh, we love you, Bob. Come on the show. Dead to me. Yes. You got our email. So where does that leave us in assessing the dead's DNA and looking for evidence of their genetic sequence? Well, you know, it's funny. The human tendency is to piece things together we're always looking for Mm. the way things fit and when you're looking at eras that you've long since passed to want to force things together in a way that might not be supported by the actual Mm -hmm. histories but with music the whole point of this is cross-pollination the beautiful thing about the grateful dead is that their songs and their aesthetic and their approach is accessible to all of us and it'll impress upon all of us differently grateful dead music and music in general is built on what came before and some of it will influence what is yet to come it's fun to analyze but it's also okay to have a little mystery you don't always know who your progenitors are or who your ancestors are right and that's okay and that wraps up Episode Zero, Set Break, Mapping the Grateful Genome. Stay tuned for more Dead to Me. Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Dead to Me Pod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.